I'm not going to name names, but as someone in my neighborhood was the chief regulator for Wachovia Bank at the time and was at the helm when they went down. And he leaned on the fence one day and he said, how do I make a criminal referral? Laughing because back in the SNL crisis, they made thousands of them. No, we made over 30,000. Yeah, so it was apparently a lost art. So in a reverse proffering, we train prosecutors and agents how to do these, but it's usually prosecutors because there's always a defense attorney there. The job is to make that target know that you're going to take this otherwise drab evidence and you're going to turn it into a way to convict him and he's going to jail. White collar targets don't want to go to jail. In a world of elite criminals, only people of elite character can protect our system. This is The New Untouchables. All right, this is Steve Grumbine with Real Progressives. This is the conclusion of our miniseries here, our pod series on the new untouchables, a pathway to the new for hearing, the new Pecora files. We have two gentlemen, including Paul Peltier, was one of the nation's foremost prosecutors, having a career that spanned three decades working for the Department of Justice, came up in Miami busting crime syndicates, busting money laundering and tax evasion. He wound up spearheading white collar prosecutions for DOJ and DC and was in charge of DOJ's white collar prosecution department. Specialty was and is accounting control crime. He was third in line at DOJ behind then Attorney General Eric Holder and Lenny Brewer. He was forced to resign out of disgust when Holder's department refused to allow him to prosecute AIG. Now he's on the side of whistleblowers who know corruption has overrun Washington. Also, Chris Swecker, like Pelletier, has a long and impeccable record of working for the FBI. Like Paul Swecker, came up in Miami where he spearheaded the nation's aggressive response, the international cocaine market led by none other than La Costra Nostra. He worked his way up the ladder, become the assistant director of criminal investigations at the FBI, and in 2004, discovered the massive mortgage fraud syndicate. He put together a nationwide dragnet to take it down. He was blocked by then Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, diverted budget from white-collar crackdowns to porn. Roland Arnall, the CEO of AmeriQuest, that was later nailed on 49-state, 475-million takedown as former President George Bush's largest contributor. We also have Bill Black joining us again for this episode. And of course, Eric Vaughn and Patrick Lavelle. I'm going to do what I've always done. I'm going to start with Patrick. Patrick, tell us why this episode matters. Well, this is the Grand Slam. What you're looking at here is the Bronx Bombers, and these guys are all clean up. I mean, I'm telling you, it doesn't get more dramatic for the untouchables than this team right here. So, as we started this conversation earlier today, Steve, Remember, I had no idea what the hell was happening in this country. I just got buried like so many people, and I just started asking questions. Once I started pulling the thread, it led to a couple of miracles. The first, of course, being Bill Black. And then after that, it was basically my colleague, Eric Vaughn, finding Addie Polk, which just was able to lead us to the White Collar Task Force and the RICO convictions in Ohio. Now, growing up in this country, I mean, like all of us, right, I celebrated the good guys. I believed in the League of Justice. I believed in Superman. I believed in 
life, liberty, and justice for all. But above all, because of my family, I believed in integrity. And so I didn't understand how in the world, as a guy in my middle age, I was coming to this situation where nothing made sense. Nothing made sense from the media. Nothing made sense from attorneys that I talked to after the great financial crisis in my personal matter. Nothing made sense in terms of the policy that was surrounding me. I knew enough just to be dangerous, I suppose. So instead of just going away and disappearing, we forged ahead and we eventually found this incredible team of guys that answered every question that Eric and I had from the very beginning. And to that point, and I'll just toss this to Eric, one of the greatest moments in this journey for me was I started to hear about Chris Swecker. Chris Swecker from the FBI, Director of Investigations of the FBI, who put together a nationwide dragnet. And I started doing some investigation and I found out Chris Swecker was one of the top guys that was blowing up La Costa Nostra in Miami, drug deals. We're talking criminal, major international drug dealing and laundering and all of the rest of these complicated crimes. And here's this guy at the Federal Bureau of Investigations trying to end, before it ever got me engulfed in this situation, what we found out later was mortgage fraud. So when I picked up the phone and I called Chris Swecker, I'll never forget it. I remember he said, I've been waiting for this phone call for six years. And what did that mean? Well, it ultimately meant that the media in this country, who could have easily done what we did, we didn't have the resources of the New York Times, we didn't have the resources of the Washington Post, we didn't have the resources of the FBI or the DOJ. What we had was the leadership of Bill Black. And Bill Black took us on a journey, and we just got more determined than ever to find the truth. And with these remaining final three pieces, what you will have is the full picture of what could have happened and what didn't. And I believe it's these gentlemen with the professional everything to be able to set this country in the right direction. You'd like to have effective regulation so that you never have the crime wave, right? Prosecution is not what we want to happen. And so we started with Art Wilmarth, one of the world's experts on Glass-Steagall and the SEC and the PCORA Commission, and showing how effective that was. And just 15 seconds with my economics hat, we knew how effective it was as economists because American stocks traded at a premium globally. Why? Because you could trust them much more than any other place. So law really works. It really makes honest business people able to prevail. But we also need the ability when regulation breaks down to be able to prosecute. Because otherwise, again, economics, criminology, common life, it's the Gresham's dynamic. When cheaters gain a competitive advantage, they drive honest people out of business. Bad ethics drives good ethics out of the marketplace. And that's a tragedy for all of us. So it's not anything anti-market to have effective law enforcement. It's what allows effective markets is having people like you see before them. Now, we've emphasized throughout this, you've got to get the facts. And when you get the facts, you can't sit on them. You actually have to issue a warning. So I introduced the con team to Chris Swecker. 
not because I personally know them. I didn't do that kind of introduction. But I said, you've got to talk to this man. He issued one of the three great warnings about the great financial crisis, any one of which, if it had been listened to, would have prevented the great financial crisis. The first one, and we had Lori Noble on, was the appraisers, where that warning actually starts in 1998. And by 2000, it's a public petition that goes through all the top federal regulatory agencies, warning of an epidemic of appraisal fraud. And from my days as a savings and loan regulator, when we made criminal referrals and when I trained FBI agents and AUSAs and served as an expert witness, I'm free as a government employee (laughs) as an expert witness, right? I knew how effective appraisal fraud is. I would explain it to a jury. It's the great protection against loss. No honest banker would ever inflate an appraisal. And I could watch the jurors within 15 seconds nodding to each other and going, yeah, of course, that makes sense. And that's what we want in cases. We don't want complicated economic theories. We're telling a story that human beings can understand, that they can relate to. That's how you get effective prosecutions. And ultimately, it's how you get effective pleas, because we don't want to prosecute, in fact, most cases because of our limited resources, right? And so the appraisal fraud is itself a fraud. It's a federal felony in almost all cases. No action was taken. None. Not a single federal regulatory agency operated. And we had seen in the savings and loan debacle that appraisal fraud was one of the key drivers of the fraud epidemic that caused that scandal. Chris comes, and Chris is not some random special agent in the FBI. He was a senior position with responsibility, formal responsibility assigned to him to deal with mortgage fraud. So when he testified in front of Congress, again, it wasn't like they picked some random person. They picked one of the world's experts. And Chris, I could tell because I had done these kinds of things myself years earlier, was deliberately, and I mean this as a positive thing, trying to get as much publicity as possible. He wanted the public to know this. He wanted the regulators to know this because he wanted them to take action. And so he spoke in plain English. He wasn't a bureaucrat. He used the word crisis in his testimony and in his media appearances. He said it was going to produce a financial crisis if an epidemic, his word, epidemic of mortgage fraud was not stopped. And he specifically said, we have to learn the lessons of the savings and loan debacle, right? He compared and said, we're going to have a crisis at least as big as the savings and loan debacle if we don't act. And the third great public warning was by the industry, the Mortgage Bankers Association own anti-fraud experts. When they said, hey, 90% of these liars loans are fraudulent. And the industry responded by increasing liars' loans substantially, right? And then we've talked about the internal warnings. 
Richard Bowen, right, at City, Michael Winston at Countrywide, how if either of them had been listened to, the secondary market would have collapsed and non-prime loans would have collapsed. The hyperinflation of the housing bubble in 2006 and 2007 would have been prevented. So this is the tragedy, the first level tragedy. But then Chris and Paul can tell you about the second level tragedy. Again, what we really wanted to do was stop it. Chris understood that. He wasn't sitting, oh, good, look at the resources we could get for prosecuting and investigating. Wow, this will be great for us. He was doing everything possible to prevent the disaster. But of course, we know that we didn't. We know, in fact, that federal regulators actually work to preempt state efforts to go after the worst frauds. They actively made things worse. And so we had our last line of defense, which is the criminal justice system. And we had had enormous successes in the criminal justice system against precisely these kinds of cases. The savings and loan debacle of course, but Paul can tell you about the successes in the Enron era. And the Enron era frauds are by much larger institutions and in many cases, more sophisticated accounting fraud techniques than we saw in the savings and loan debacle. And in these cases, I think both Paul and Chris will explain our experience was repeated, which is when you go after the CEO, they will spend money like water to stay out of prison and they will hire the best criminal defense lawyers in the world. And I will tell you, America has the best criminal defense lawyers in the world. <laughs> this is no small thing. And then somebody like Paul and Chris in prior life has to actually go into court and prove beyond a reasonable doubt and get unanimous agreement among 12 jurors that that standard has been met. With the key difficulty typically being proving the intent of the CEO in those circumstances, CFO, chairman of the board type of thing, which they work with general counsel enormously effectively to make it hard for us to do. The key advantage of an elite white collar criminal is that you get to talk with your lawyer first. In the blue collar sphere, you meet your defendant in jail <laughs> after they've been arrested and after typically they've made incriminating statements. It's a little late to be an effective criminal defense lawyer. But as someone who's been a general counsel of a major bank, we can give you all kinds of opinions in advance, CEO, that what you're going to do is lawful. And we can write for you a whole series of dozens of hundreds of memoranda in which you urge everyone to do the right thing and employ the most moral means possible. You can be an icon of virtue in this incredible written record and such. Again, they're very effective. So what we have is the huge advantage. We have a person who gave the second earliest warning in all of America at the highest possible level, the most credible source you can imagine. 
and ask him what the response was. <laughs> and then Paul and Chris can tell you, and I can add, we knew how to succeed. We had succeeded despite all these disadvantages that I've talked about. And Paul will tell you why we were not allowed to even try to succeed. And Chris can tell you that as well. So that's what I would hope actually the two of you would go sort of back and forth and explain how the FBI and the Justice Department and once when there were regulators, financial regulators, go about getting successful prosecutions against the most elite folks, because this is a team that has done it in practice. Chris, tell us, what is your role in this and what was your experience? Take it from the top and we'll get you back and forth with Paul. All right. You have to go back to 2002, 2003 to get some perspective on this. I was the head of the FBI in North Carolina and like all SAC, special agents in charge, we were looking at corporate fraud. Paul knows this. He was top level of Justice Department in the white collar area. We had an epidemic at that time of corporate fraud. We also were dealing with the post 9-11 era and all kinds of other violations, investment fraud, securities fraud, et cetera. But I started to notice that more and more mortgage fraud cases were popping up on my radar screen. Now, we had two major banks in North Carolina, that time Wachovia and Nations Bank, which later became Bank of America. So we had a lot of white collar crime, but we started to see a real influx of mortgage fraud cases, appraisal frauds, mortgage flipping, getting mortgages on loans that properties that didn't exist in some cases or develop you know, loans on property that wasn't developed. There were all different variations of the mortgage fraud scam. I took that with me when I went to Washington in 2004 as head of the FBI's criminal investigative division. And there I got a look at all the cases across the country, all criminal cases across the country. And I noticed again that this was not just confined to North Carolina, this was across the country. Wherever there was red hot real estate markets, Southern California, Georgia, Florida, in the Sun Belt, we saw just rampant mortgage fraud. As I said, there's so many different variations of it. The banks didn't help. And the banks, in fact, were the enablers. They were the cause. With the exotic products that they had come up with, we said, what's going on here? Let's study up on this. Let's get some analysts on it. And they were looking at the very exotic mortgage products that were out there countrywide, being sort of the poster child for liar loans, no doc loans, no down payment loans, all kinds of variations. So it kind of threw out basic banking principles, collateral, ability to repay, et cetera. So we decided to get on our soapbox and we saw some problems. We knew there was a secondary market out there where mortgages were being bought and sold in bundles. And I'm oversimplifying that, but the banks had figured out a way to bundle up these mortgages and sell them and slice them and dice them in tranches and sell them to investors across the globe. And they had no idea what they were getting. If the core asset is flawed, no matter how many times you buy it and sell it and slice it up and bundle it, the entire package of mortgages becomes flawed. And at the very heart of it, it was fraud. So we tried to get out in front of this. We set up task forces across the country. We tasked all the agents in charge to get out in front of this mortgage fraud situation. 
we talked to the Mortgage Bankers Association, we talked to some of the banks. What we saw was very little interest in governing themselves, the banks themselves. I liken it to steroids in baseball. If somebody takes steroids and hits 62, 65 home runs, and everybody knows what's going on, and the ones that are supposed to be watching, the regulators, whoever they are, let it go. Then the honest ones out there are going to either take it on the chin or they're going to join in. And so I call it that steroids dynamic that we saw in baseball during the steroids era. So we did have several mortgage fraud takedowns at a national level. We used that. We bundled up all these cases across the country, called some press conferences, put them out there and talked about mortgage fraud. And we tried to alert the public and alert the regulators who were, I'm sorry to say, asleep at the wheel at the time. They were either outgunned or outclassed or outsmarted. Even the ones who were embedded in the banks seemed to not be too concerned about it. So 2004, five, six, seven, it just accelerates. So I retired in 2006 and went to a bank, Bank of America. Oddly enough, I was part of the risk team. I never once heard anyone discuss the risk of mortgage-backed securities, which was surprising to me. And the rest is history. But I'll pass it off to Paul. I know Paul has a lot to say about this. We were the investigators. We were screaming from the rooftops. We were trying to get attention. I ended up testifying up on the Hill about this. And we tried to get some attention around it and actually get some resources. We were not pandering. This is the post 9-11 era where criminal agents were scarce. And we had to pass off a lot of our criminal agents over to counterterrorism, to the counterterrorism program. So it came at a bad time. We were undermanned at the time and we needed more resources. And we asked for more resources. We went across the street to the Justice Department, asked them to support a budget request or, or a series of budget requests for at least 150 more agents to work mortgage fraud across the country. Unfortunately, to answer your question, what happened when we asked for it? We heard crickets. Can you tell me how many banking regulators called you when the top FBI person said that there was an economic crisis coming because of an epidemic of fraud? You must have been overwhelmed by the calls you got from the regulators. Nice setup. None. Not a one. A lot of crickets in this world, apparently. I'm not going to name names, but as someone in my neighborhood was the chief regulator for Wachovia Bank at the time and was at the helm when they went down. And he leaned on the fence one day and he said, how do I make a criminal referral? <laughs> I was laughing because back in the SNL crisis, they made thousands of them. No, we made over 30,000. Yeah. So it was them. apparently a lost art. How many criminal referrals did you get from the banking regulatory agencies? I don't recall any. There may have been a trickle, but I don't recall any. They should have been coming in on SARS like a flood, like somebody had opened up the spigot, but it didn't happen, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that sets it up for Paul quite nicely. Yeah, so you started off in 2004, Chris, and I'd like to start off in 2004, but I'd like to also say that Patrick sort of compared us to the Bronx Bombers, but I'd like more so to compare us to the 2004 Red Sox, <laughs> who were facing the abyss and hopefully ended up making something from it. But anyway, not a Yankee fan at all. But I do want to back up a little bit. I'm going to 
sort of back up to 1984, 1985s, because that's my experience. And I just wanted to walk you through my education about how these complex cases are prosecuted and what I learned as a prosecutor before I came to Washington. In, in 1985, I came to Miami, and Miami was, as anybody who reads books or watches the news knows, was being inundated by drug traffickers and drug trafficking. And as a prosecutor, of course, it was like dying and going to heaven. But at the end of the day, really what was going on is Congress, the FBI, the law enforcers, DOJ, they were all getting together to develop both laws, regulations, but mostly laws in defining how we were going to approach and attack drug trafficking so that we could make a difference. And lucky for me, I worked in Miami at the U.S. Attorney's Office with some terrific prosecutors, worked with the most unbelievable FBI agents I've ever worked with, with DEA agents. Chris Swecker was one of those where I met Chris Swecker in Miami. And I saw what teamwork could do as it relates to law enforcement and making an impact. And ultimately, Congress gave us money laundering laws. They gave us minimum mandatories for these drug crimes. And we were able, I thought, to make a real big impact. I think ultimately we drove the drug traffickers out of South Florida into Mexico and those type of places. But we were able to use the laws and teamwork and experience to actually make an impact. Now, what else happened during this point in time? Well, in 1988, 89, the savings and loan crisis is going on. And I don't know Bill Black at the time, but I see these bank fraud task forces and I see what they're doing out there. In Miami, we had David Paul, Centrus Bank. I actually see what, in the white collar space, what task forces and concentration of effort and teamwork can do and the impact they make. So that's just what I'm observing as a prosecutor. I was not a savings and loan bank fraud prosecutor, but ultimately I began to prosecute white collar crimes in Miami. And then we fast forward to 2002 and we have what I call the Enron accounting fraud scandals. I go to Washington, I get invited to Washington to work in the fraud section and participate in an effort to see what we can do to tackle these new accounting frauds that are devastating or damaging our economy. And what do I learn there? I learned the same thing, that when you task force agents, when you task force regulators, when you task force Congress to all work together on a particular issue or problem and to train up prosecutors to do that, train up agents to do that, it actually can make an impact. While we didn't put as many executives in jail as the savings and loan crisis, we put nearly a thousand executives in jail. So I saw actually government working. I saw regulators working. I saw Congress working. And I saw the Department of Justice and law enforcers working to actually do their job, make an impact, and make a difference out there. That seemed to end in 2007 and 2008 when the great economic crisis hit. But obviously, we didn't do the job. Paul, do you remember when this extraordinary meeting was called with all the U.S. attorneys, all the special agents in charge? President Bush came out and addressed us. The attorney general addressed us. It had to deal with corporate fraud. Yes, I do. July 22nd, 2002. Right. I do remember that. It was That's just... what an all-out effort looks like. <laughs> to your point, this was U.S. attorneys. It was all the other agencies that had anything to do with white-collar crime. 
some of the regulators, the president of the United States, the attorney general came together in one place at one time and said, we're putting a marker down. We're going after this. We're not going to have three-year paper chases. We're going to have hard-hitting, fast-moving prosecutions. We'll roll the middlemen. The prosecutors will make the deals. We'll get to the top ranks, and we'll get there quick. And we'll have a visible deterrent for anybody else who wants to engage in this kind you know, of... I was there. I was very impressed. And it was sort of what my experience had been in the Department of Justice. It was right. what I expected. And also, just like you said, in Miami, I learned you indict the case, you move, you move, you move, you move. And that's what we were doing. And I do remember that Jim Comey at the time said, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. These right. Cases, I remember that. These cases have to be made today because the juries out there, the people in the juries are the ones being affected by this activity. Justice delayed, justice denied. You know, unfortunately, we're on the tail end of it. We're the deterrent. If it's gotten to the FBI and to the courts, then the first two lines or three lines of defense have failed. You know, the lines of defense, this line at the banks or the brokerage house or wherever, the compliance people inside the institution. Then you have the regulators. And we're way down on the other end where if you've come to us, you know, we're trying to put somebody away for a visible deterrent to deter that kind of conduct. Unfortunately, pretty much all of that broke down, right, Bill? Yeah. If either or both of you could just briefly explain to an audience that doesn't know this, the United States is very unusual in its ability to flip witnesses compared to, say, England, for example, where you can't make the kind of plea deals. So explain how we get to the top. In any complex case, you need an inside person to give you the playbook. You can try to do it from the outside. You can try to do wiretaps. You can try to get historical evidence and do a paper chase. We call it a paper chase. If all you're doing is using subpoenas to get documents, grand jury subpoenas, they take forever. The best way to go about it is, if you can't get a live source in the organization, is go after the people who have the playbooks, the middle management ranks, if you will, the people that have all the knowledge, the people that are the doers. And they're the ones that are getting the marching orders from people above them. You want to basically flip them over to the good side. So we would make that effort as investigators. And we had to have the consent of the prosecutors and the participation of the prosecutors to do that. So that's where Paul will come in. Yeah. So, Bill, that's a great point. In these kinds of cases, as you said earlier, the intent is the big issue, right? So if you're putting a bunch of paper down in front of a jury, it's very difficult to get over that line of reasonable doubt. As Chris said, you need a player, you need an insider that's going to walk the jury through the criminal activity. So how do you get that? Well, like you said, well, these defense attorneys, sometimes they're talking to the executive before law enforcement, but not always. And so what we spent a lot of time doing in conducting training exercises for this corporate fraud task force, for this accounting fraud, we would train prosecutors, number one, and agents, by the way, how important knock and talks were in these types of cases, where the law enforcement agent could be the first one on the scene. So that's number one. And number two, it's a different dynamic. When you're a drug prosecutor, the last person you want to be showing your case to is the defense attorney or the defendant or the target. In a white collar case, particularly accounting fraud or any type of financial crime, what prosecutors do that's sort of different and what I did a lot of is you do what I call reverse proffers. In other words, you're bringing in that middle level executive that Chris is talking about, 
And what I'm doing is I'm showing him, usually through a PowerPoint presentation, how I'm going to convict him. Why am I doing that? I'm doing that because I don't trust his attorney ever will, but I need to flip somebody in order to get them to go up the chain so we can get to the top of the food chain and take out the entire organization, hopefully. So in a reverse proffer, and we train prosecutors and agents how to do these, but it's usually prosecutors because there's always a defense attorney there. The job is to make that target know that you're going to take this otherwise drab evidence and you're going to turn it into a way to convict him and he's going to jail. White collar targets don't want to go to jail. So my desire in every one of these reverse proffers was to make that person cry before it was over. Because if I did, I knew I had him. But again, as you said, this is how you flip people because if you're in a trial and for five days you're trying a case or 10 days or two weeks and nobody said, hey, by the way, we committed a crime and I did it with him, him, and him, then you've got a hell of a burden for yourself. You're probably not going to get a conviction at the end of the day. So in almost all of these cases, it's vitally important to get someone to say, I committed a crime and I did it with him. And that's right. what the whole flipping and reverse proffering things about. You are listening to The New Untouchables, a podcast brought to you by a collaboration of the creators of the docuseries The Con and Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube and follow us on Periscope, Twitter and Instagram. So a real anecdote out of the savings loan debacle, Charles Keating was the most notorious fraud. He had a president who was notoriously tough woman, and two defense counsels were talking for different folks in front of me. One said, oh, she's so tough, she'll never flip. Second one asked, does she have children? Mm-hmm. And the answer was, yes, six and eight. And then the attorney responded, 15 minutes. <laughs> Exactly right. Because you have the discussion that says, I see this picture of your daughters. They're really wonderful. You will perhaps be out in time to go to their wedding, but certainly not their prom. And that has a way of bringing reality to witnesses. And remember, a lot of these white collar defendants, even though they've committed crimes, they don't wake up like a lot of fraudsters or like a lot of criminals. They don't wake up every day and say, oh, I can't wait to go commit that crime of the day, right? They have convinced themselves to a large degree that what they've done is okay. It's okay. That's their sleeping pill. It's how they go to work every day. What you do in these reverse proffers is you work on that. You make them understand how that's going to be exposed. Right. So most of the cases we make by flipping folks when we get to higher level, but let's briefly tell people the limits of that. What kind of instruction is given when we put that person on the stand? 
that a person who has pled guilty, that you should critically evaluate their testimony as they have an incentive to not tell the truth. It affects their credibility, all that stuff. And because of that, we try to get independent confirmation of events. And you do things often in important cases, like even polygraph Mm -hmm. the person to see if they're really telling the truth, right? Not that it's admissible in court, but because you don't want to sponsor false testimony, right? That's correct. But short of a polygraph, and I don't like polygraphing people, but short of a polygraph, you corroborate the hell out of what's going on. And again, this is where the FBI comes in, is that they spend a lot of time corroborating the story because, first of all, if he's not telling the truth and you don't figure that out before you put him on the stand, you're going to lose the case, right? Right. So you've got to make sure that your witnesses are telling the truth. Right. We go back and forth between testimony and documents and we test those kinds of things. But here's the point. Somebody is much more ideal as a witness. And that somebody is one of the major features of the documentary series, The Con. Whistleblowers. And whistleblowers come in lots of different flavors, but whistleblowers who were star employees, not disaffected, that got promotion after promotion, who did not take it to the press immediately, but did everything internally and have a documentary record as well as the oral record. And then everything they can testify about makes no sense for an honest bank. And bankers, yeah. how would you evaluate them as witnesses? Well, Enron was that case, right? Enron was started with a whistleblower and nobody believed her. She was that employee that you're talking about. She was a star employee and she saw what was going on and she was shunned. Susan Watkins. She ended up being not only a star witness, she ended up being the truth teller. Okay. So what we had in the savings and loan debacle, to my memory, I don't recall a single whistleblower testifying. Zero. Now, I don't know all the cases because there were over a thousand successful prosecutions, but I know a hell of a lot of them. In the great financial crisis, we had thousands of whistleblowers for the first time. Did you have thousands of whistleblowers in the Enron era? No, very few. So what would you, Paul, if you had ever gotten the call if the bugle had ever sounded to unleash you in effective task forces that we know how to create yes. and how to make them successful, mm-hmm. what would you have done? And what, Chris, if you had still been with the FBI at that point, would you have done in terms of enlisting that army of the best whistleblowers that you could put on the stand? All I can tell you is when I saw that 60 Minutes episode where they expose the whistleblowers in Citibank. And I'm like, this is it. This is gold. This is how you make these cases. Who was hiding these whistleblowers? Why weren't they being brought to the attention of everybody? And I will tell you that I lived it. I know exactly what happened. I know why they weren't. I know what happened. I know the difference between the Savings and Loan Task Force, the Enron Task Force, and the No Task Force that, that effectively handled the great financial crisis. Remind everybody that the previous episode featured exactly what Paul is referring to. We just had an hour with Dick Bowen from Citigroup, who was that actual guy on 60 Minutes. And because I like alliteration, I call it the platinum platter. Yeah. So what would you have done with him? That's pretty obvious and pretty simple. The first thing I would have done 
I'm a country lawyer. First of all, I would have said to the FBI, why haven't you brought this guy? What the heck's going on? But what happened in the, I want to call them the Enron accounting fraud scandals. What we did, as I said, we brought all the prosecutors, and it started with President Bush, right? We brought all the prosecutors, all the agents together and said, what can we do to make it so you folks know that every day when you get up, that your job is to investigate and prosecute these accounting fraud scandals? And the recipe was fairly simple. First of all, train prosecutors and agents how to do these accounting fraud cases, all right? It's not about accounting standards or not about anything like that. It's about lying, cheating, and deceiting. How do you prove that people are lying, cheating, and deceiting? And, and so, got rich from it. Well, I get it too, but as you know, at the end of the day, a lot of CEOs, it's very difficult to put that money directly in their pocket when we're talking about the great financial crisis, right? Right. It comes from bonuses. Right. So right. what you do, the profit's always gravy, right? But you got to show the jury where the break was in the crime, right? Why, why is it just ordinary behavior? How they lied, how they cheated, how they deceived. And so we trained prosecutors. We worked very hard to train prosecutors and agents how to prove those cases, not to call experts and talk about accounting rules and things like that, because that's nonsense, right? And then we spent a lot of time. Every month, we would get together at Maine Justice. Who's working what case? Where is that case going? How come there are no cases being made here? What's going on? Do you need any more resources? And so that type of activity is what you do when you institutionally want to tackle the problem. That in the great financial cases, what I'm telling you about right now, never happened. So nobody knew where these whistleblowers were percolating up. Nobody knew what was happening in California. What did we see on TV? We saw Countrywide being slapped on the wrist and the CEO of Countrywide being told we're not going to prosecute you literally 10 to 12 weeks after he took an SEC settlement. So how does that happen in a world where people give a shit? And I'm just telling you that didn't happen with respect to the great financial crisis. And we saw it happening in slow motion. And two episodes ago in this podcast, the chief whistleblower at Countrywide talked to us about how he could have delivered on a platinum platter right at that level, the CEO Mozilla. He personally had the conversations with him. And given the intent being difficult, what happens when we are able to present testimony of the senior people saying, I brought to attention and I quantified that the percentage of fraud in our representations and warranties we're giving to Fannie and Freddie is 80%. And in response, I got fired. Well, that's not a very good story to tell in front of a criminal jury. And remember, when you watched Lady Brewer on TV, when you watched Eric Holder on TV, what they always talked about was how complicated these cases were and, and how, you know, you know, lawyers blessed all this stuff. Well, that was just pure nonsense, right? In reality, what people were doing was lying about valuations on the front end and lying about valuations on the back end. That's very easy to prove if you're a prosecutor, if you have a witness that can back that up. So it was really about lying about valuations. Either you're lying about the value of the stuff as you're putting it into the market, or you're lying when the market figures out, you're lying about what's happening to your portfolio as the market's collapsing around. And do we have a doctrine that helps us prosecute if the CEO 
make sure that he doesn't hear bad facts? Yeah, that's called deliberate ignorance or willful blindness. Yeah, willful blindness and such. And we can actually get an instruction from the judge to the jurors that this can establish intent, right? Right. And what jurors and what common sense dictates is that we don't have a bunch of people acting in a major financial institution, acting rogue. People know that in these companies, it's a fairly orderly system. You don't have a lot of rogue behavior. And so it doesn't take jurors much to understand that the boss usually knows about this stuff when it's happening. Because the worst thing that could happen to you if you're an underling is if the boss doesn't know something you're doing, you're going to get fired. So anyway, jurors understand that as sort of a common sense principle. Right. But it's nice to have a whistleblower who personally wrote to Robert Rubin to put him on notice. Right. You call it a whistleblower. I call it an eyewitness to the crime. That's exactly what I would call them if I was wearing your hat. So in this incredible revelation of everything that you guys are bringing now and also what we got on camera and what we're presenting the kind, one of the things that just dumbfounded me, Mr. Swecker, was when you had put into context that you thought La Costa Nostra was sophisticated. How then would you characterize the CEOs of this control fraud? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's no comparison. I mean, they all applied their trade. They knew their trade. It was prostitution. It was gambling. It was labor racketeering and all that good stuff. That doesn't compare to this type of white collar fraud. It's very complex. It's a business related fraud. It's fraud in the business environment involving business processes. And it can be incredibly complex to unravel, hence the need for the whistleblower. You know, one of the reasons, Patrick, that we went public so aggressively was we wanted people out there to know that we were open for business. We wanted those whistleblower calls. We wanted them to come forward and know that it wasn't going to fall on deaf ears and that the risk they were taking was worth whatever the reward would be. Paul talked a lot about the corporate fraud crisis. After the corporate fraud crisis, they created laws that incentivize whistleblowers, but we just weren't getting them in the mortgage fraud area. And we really were trying to prime the pump to get those phone calls. We got a few. The more you need the whistleblower, the more you need the insider. Right. Because what the whistleblower does is it gets you from A to Z a lot quicker than if you're trying to unravel it without understanding what the map was. Let me draw an analogy. I mean, police officers ride around in cars and they get a call and they go to the scene of the crime because somebody's reported something going on. In the world of white collar, you've got to dig up the crime. It's not going to fall out of the sky. It's not going to land in your lap. You've got to go looking for it. And you got to be sophisticated enough to find the crime. It's not coming to you. So you have to go develop strategies and techniques to mine the crime out of all of that other chaff. And that was an incredibly difficult part of the mortgage fraud dynamic. I think, Paul, we got to it in the corporate fraud area. And I think we threw that all out, all hands on deck, flood the zone effort. I think we created some very visible deterrence. But then along comes this other type of fraud, and it's a different animal, but it's not totally different. Mm -hmm. What we needed, though, and you pointed it out, was that aggressive prosecutive and investigative push. And it just didn't seem to materialize when it needed to. Had you received all the resources that you were hoping to get when, Mr. Swecker, you went to the Bush administration and eventually what would have been to Congress, what would have happened if you got all the resources that you were looking for? What might have been different? 
Yeah, what we were looking for was the same effort and sense of urgency that we had around the corporate fraud. You know, what Paul's describing is the accounting fraud, the Enron. When I retired from the FBI, we had an inventory of about 400 cases. And about 20 of them were losses of over a billion dollars. And there was a very quick sense of urgency around all of that corporate. Enron was sort of the bellwether case. We needed the resources. We needed to get out there and investigate aggressively. We needed to let people know we were out there. And frankly, I'll tell you, we had a little more than 100 FBI agents working mortgage fraud. That was nowhere near enough. 9-11 was an influencer. You know, we were still in the throes of post 9-11 era when it was all about terrorism and counterintelligence. But we desperately needed another 150 or so agents. Paul can't prosecute unless we bring him a case. And we needed more prosecutors too. We really needed that all hands on deck effort. Let me put together this prioritization and numbers that you're talking about from my perspective as a regulator, but also as a criminologist, white collar criminologist. When I was Ed Gray's principal lieutenant in the re-regulation of the industry, he made it really clear, all of the Bush speech, your number one priority is getting the frauds out of control of the institution. Because as long as they're in control, they're going to cause losses to grow enormously, right? Your number two priority is to assist in every conceivable way and pressure the Department of Justice to prosecute, right? So that was our mandate. And we created, if you recall back then, there actually wasn't even a uniform SARS criminal referral. Right. We actually created as part of that process, that system, and then we created coordinators in every one of our offices. And those coordinators were not little people or people who had failed. They were highly successful people within our organization. And they had responsibility for meeting with their counterparts in the FBI and the assistant U.S. attorneys at least every quarter and on every major referral getting feedback. What had we done wrong? What could have been strengthened? How should we make this process work better? And then they would go and retrain our people and make it better. In jargon, this is continuous improvement type system. So eventually on major cases, our criminal referrals were 40 pages long with 200 to 300 pages of attachments, but with super user-friendly design for precisely what the FBI and the AUSAs needed, right? And then on really big cases, we would detail one of our most experienced examiners to the grand jury investigation, right? So that 6E type secrecy issues, they could continue as the internal expert on banking. And as much as FBI agents try to get expert, you can imagine we live our lives with financial mm -hmm. institutions. We know a heck of a lot about them and we know about how to put it into plain English. We pick people that could testify in English as opposed to a whole series of numbers, right? And at peak, we had a thousand FBI agents assigned just to the savings and loan case. We were transferring agents all over the country. Yep. Specialty transfers to the hotspots. Right. And we had in Dallas task force alone, a hundred FBI agents. And both of you know this, but to the listeners, they're not just FBI agents, right? So we had postal inspectors, we had treasury specialists, we had 
IRS forensic accountant specialists. And of course, this huge contribution from the regulators making all these referrals and then actually testifying in the cases. And we trained our regulators how to ask the questions in writing and demand written responses. And we had tight questions, not the ones you could evade, in which they either had to admit that they had violated the regulation or lie. And as you know, lying to a federal regulator with the intent to deceive is itself a federal crime. So hundreds of the people convicted in the savings and loan debacle were convicted because they lied to the federal regulator. Because we actually had rules that you could violate. It was this whole process, it was super high priority. Eventually it became the thing that if you took one of these top 100 cases, we hyper-prioritized the cases at Justice Department request. The 100 most serious fraud schemes, 600 individuals, 300 institutions, virtually all of them were prosecuted successfully with a 90% conviction rate. Again, I need to get across to the viewers. These are incredibly difficult cases. Anybody who tells you bringing an elite white collar case is simple is bullshitting you. But that doesn't mean if you get really good and do it right. And again, Paul's lesson, Chris's lesson, my lesson, we know how to do it right. You can have enormous success. And my guess is that the three of us have all spent many hundreds of hours of our lives training people. Yeah. And so, Bill, I agree with you that these are complex cases, but we're not putting a man on the moon, right? <laughs> so the way I see it is sort of the three C's of success. And what you're talking about, what Chris is talking about in terms of the sense of urgency and putting the pieces together with the stakeholders, that's the first thing. That's commitment. You want law enforcement, regulatory, and political commitment to tackle the problem. We did not have that in the great financial crisis. There was not the commitment from above. And what's the second C? You also talked about it's competence. Do you have competent leaders in charge? And do you have competent people, like you just talked about, addressing the cases and addressing the investigation? From a leadership perspective, and by the way, in the accounting fraud scandals, we had Larry Thompson, Jim Comey, at least from the Department of Justice perspective, we had the most competent leadership of senior prosecutors who were empowering us to go forward and do this. So we had the second team as well. We had competence. We did not have that in the great financial crisis in our leadership at all. And then the third component, which I think is the most important component, if you've nailed those down, the third C is courage. you got to have courage to bring cases that you just might lose, right? You just can't worry about losing. And you have to have the courage to do what nobody's done before. And that was lacking in the great financial crisis as well. I think it boils down to that. And I do want to stress is as complicated as these cases are, it's not putting man on the moon. There is a recipe to do it. I agree. And by the way, our lesson was the same, of course, as you know. We didn't bring shotgun, super complicated economics cases. We simplified, simplified, simplified. Can we explain in common English that somebody deceived somebody and they did it deliberately? Gentlemen, I want to jump in real quick because what I'm hearing here is that these crimes, which affect millions of people, 
Tens of millions. Tens, tens, of tens millions. or hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions of people, right? These crimes that affect so many people, cause so many suicides, cause so many deaths in general, cause families to break up, cause destitution, cause people to be homeless. All these crimes. There wasn't the political will. There wasn't the courage to chase after that. But yet for the average person who gets arrested for a joint or gets arrested for not paying a fine on time, a $50 fine, or gets arrested for any number of petty, easy, kind of clunky crimes, it takes no political will, no courage whatsoever to attack. These are the people that are losing their homes. And we have to be able to make them see the tie-ins so that they can get angry enough and focused enough and direct enough to bring about what we're talking about, which is a new modern PCORA hearing. We want to bring justice to this situation. And it seems like you guys are the best in your craft. We're the best in your craft. Understand this inside and out. You've told your story to anybody that will listen. People have not listened, or if they have, they haven't put it all together. I'm hoping that at the end of this effort that we're doing here, that we've presented in the combination of the con, other things that have happened, other newsreels, and this series, that people will have enough information, enough energy to push forward and demand justice. What would you say to an average person who's watching these guys? Literally, I would call it murder because the deaths are direct from their behavior. What would you say to them as these people walk free? What would you say to them to help them understand and how to channel their anger? What I would say to people is what I say to everybody anyway. And, and look, as a prosecutor for almost 30 years, I prosecuted from street crime, drug crime, all the way to high-level white-collar crime. It is very clear that there's a different judicial system, a different system of justice for the guy with the joint, the person of lower socioeconomic needs, the person that doesn't have the money to fight. There's a different justice system for those people. And I fought it, but it exists. And what I would say to them is when people tell you that maybe there wasn't a crime here, maybe it was too complicated to trust your gut, that's nonsense. It is complete nonsense. And you've got to demand that our justice system treats the CEO of Wall Street the same as it treats the guy on Main Street selling crack on the corner. They've got to do it, and they can do it. We have the capacity to do it. We've done it. So at the end of the day, I believe that people can't let either politicians or leadership in law enforcement off the hook by agreeing that somehow the dynamic is so different that one you can effectively tackle and one you can't, because we've proven that's false. How about you, Chris? I think you got to get the public engaged in this type of thing. And I think we did a pretty good job in the Enron corporate crisis. The media can help too. We have to demand the same type of effort out of our prosecutors, our agents, our regulators, our legislators that we did to take care of that crisis. And to get into on the prevention end of it, we can't forget what happened in 2008, 2009. That's not ancient history. Our mortgage market right now is red hot. Real estate is red hot. And I see the same bubble developing right now that I saw in 2007, the lead up to that financial crisis. And we seem to be oblivious to it. The very reason I'm participating in this 
is because I don't want that to happen again. And I really total awareness, getting the media out there to talk about this again, to make sure it doesn't happen again. Talk about the mistakes that were made back then. That's what we're talking about right now. So I just think that total complete awareness of what happened back in 2008, 2007, and that mantra of never again. You know, as I look at the Biden administration filling up the cabinet spaces and stuff like that, I'm not exactly convinced this administration is lining itself up to be an ally in this fight. Would you say that? Banks have an incredible lobby. They spend a lot of money on elections and they just finished spending a lot of money. And I worry all the time that that money buys you a lot of goodwill on the part of the very people that ought to be going after them when they do something wrong. I'm an eternal optimist. And I I believe that the school's still out. I believe that the Biden administration can get it right, has the intention to get it right. But I believe how they staffed in the Department of Justice and who they put at cabinet levels over the agencies that have responsibility for these types of financial crimes is going to go a long way into the competence component of success, in my view. I think it's possible, and I certainly hope that they will put the commitment to that effort that's necessary. One final question. When you guys look at the understaffing, I know that Chris made the mention that we were in the midst of counterterrorism work and having to move agents. But do you see a consistent, small government-minded approach to limiting government to the point where it's ineffective, too small to actually jail in this case? Do you see a subversive element there that makes it so that these staffing decisions are such that we don't have enough there? Or do you think that's just happenstance? My experience has been, and remember, the Department of Justice has over 2,000 prosecutors, okay? And so my experience has been that when you have competent people, trained people, people who are up to the job, that they find a way to get it done, right? Look, I've worked in the Department of Justice for a long time. There's a good 30% of people that don't do a heck of a lot throughout government, right? So you've got to train and empower the people who want to do it. And so I've never been this guy who says, oh, we don't have enough resources. Yeah, we always want more resources. But there's over 2,000 prosecutors across the country that, for the most part, most of them took the job to do exactly what we're talking about. So it's a matter of, again, getting them trained up to do it, getting them committed to do it, and then having leaders with the courage to ask them to do it. So I don't, I don't see that dynamic that you're talking about. My view and my perspective is from the Department of Justice. Can I tell you from what I think is our joint perspective, but I'll let people speak for themselves. As you say, lots of people have been trained to believe from the president and the attorney general and the head of the criminal division, either that this wasn't criminal conduct or that it was impossible to prosecute. And they are frustrated hearing those things and they don't ask the next question well then what is your proposal to fix it if it's this destructive and it's not currently a crime what bill are you sponsoring tomorrow that's going to make it a crime so that we can actually prosecute it but i believe the three of us know that both of those things are untrue yes they were overwhelmingly crime and we could have prosecuted them successfully. We knew how to do that. And so for people like us, my stomach is sick 
thinking about this because I knew we could succeed and the people at the top never even let us try to succeed. They ensured that we would fail in this response. In the savings and loan debacle of those thousand felony convictions, to my knowledge, not a single one of them reappeared in the great financial crisis. But in this crisis, now they have all the skill set developed and none of them have criminal records. Incredibly dangerous. I think that what we have here, very early on, we spoke to a couple gentlemen from Summit County, Ohio, who successfully prosecuted some low-level players in this crime epidemic that led to 2008. And I think that the question that we ask is, why didn't this happen on a national scale? And I think that the really incredible thing that we heard here is that we have three gentlemen that represent the fact that something could have happened on a national scale, that these crimes could have been prosecuted, and that that is something that provides me with hope, knowing that there's people like Bill and Paul and Chris that are out there and have been out there who have been working so incredibly hard to make the right things happen that I'm not going to let go of my optimism that we can right this ship. And I think that that is like probably one of the key things that I'm taking away from this discussion. And Patrick, you had something to say. Well, I want to echo Eric's sentiment because we've been joined at the hip, Eric and I, literally years and years and years. We've crisscrossed this country more times than we can possibly count in search of the truth. And when I grew up, my grandfather always told me that you can achieve anything you want to, but you got to be willing to put in the work, right? Never did I think in a gazillion years it would have taken us this long and it would be this uphill of a battle with our partner, Eric, to get to the point of literally talking to the untouchables. Right, Steve, what we are witness to here are the people that should be not just on a podcast between us, but sought after by every single politician who's ever said that they serve the people of the United States. I can think about five or six on my hand right now that have told us over the last several election cycles all the stuff that they're going to do for us, all the stuff that they actually stand for. But did they ever go to these people? No, they didn't. We did. And so the bottom line is, I hope that our listeners out there will demand that everyone that's here in this show that they've heard, the new untouchables, the Files, gets elevated in a way where it's like the critical mass has to rise to the level of what this criminality is. Like Paul said earlier, like Chris said earlier, like Bill said earlier, we're talking tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of victims of a situation that has gotten completely out of hand. In fact, when we started, I thought this thing couldn't get any worse. Every day we're reminded, (laughs) every day we're reminded that this thing can get worse and it seemingly is getting worse. If the professionals don't step up to the plate to be able to do what we expect of our country, right? Who knows what happens next? All I care about is the fact that today we've delivered on a platinum platter the truth. Now it's up to the people. Yes. And with that, as founder of Real Progressives, an incredible opportunity to be able to be a part of this. I'm humbled to the point words escape me. This has been such an education for me, from watching the con series to 
talking to each of these individuals on the show and to be able to talk to you all offline. I want to see action come from this. I don't want this just to be infotainment. I want this to be something that people take and act upon. And I think between us here at RP and others in the alternative media and hopefully mainstream media, hopefully everyone picks up on this, that they take direct action and that we bring this to justice and we create laws like a new Glass-Steagall that bring this corruption to a halt. Stop it dead in its tracks so no one else gets hurt. With that, I want to thank each and every one of you for being a part of this. Bill Black, thank you, sir, for being just a great friend and just a wonderful resource. Paul, it was so nice to meet you on this. Thank you so much for being here. Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us as well. And Eric, of course, you have been just amazing. And to my team at Real Progressives, who has worked on this from the back end, every one of you is a superstar in my book. And to our listeners, I hope that you take this seriously. I hope that you take action. Find a way to be a part of this. Find a way to contribute. Find a way to take this information and get it in other people's hands so that we can stop this once and for all. With that, thank you all very much. Have a great one. The New Untouchables is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Roseanne Rabiola Miele and promotional artwork by Christina of Paradigms and Revolutions Design Group. The New Untouchables is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to The New Untouchables, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives.